0: Welcome to All About Apprenticeships, brought to you by the HomeServe Foundation. I'm Georgie Frost, and here's what we've got coming up in this episode. From a teen with dreams of a career in cars to reaching the very top of the most iconic brand in the world, former Aston Martin CEO Andy Palmer's seen it all, and now he's set up his own foundation to help apprentices achieve what he has. We'll also speak to Tim Smith from the newly rebranded Multiverse. They've been making headlines this week, we'll find out why, plus what he makes of new reforms to post-16 education the government says will boost skills and get more people into work. And we'll be meeting another of our apprentices this week. It's Dexter Hutchings. But first, he's a licensed racing driver, former CEO of Aston Martin, and in 2012, Auto Express magazine voted him into their Hall of Fame as the most influential person in the global automotive business. He's now chairman of Optair Limited and vice chairman of Inabat, Andy Palmer. Welcome to All About Apprenticeships. Hello. Nice to meet you. I don't think I've ever read out someone with so many uh, things at the start of their name. Um So happy to have you on. Let's go right back to the start then, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Tell us about a young Andy and why you were so desperate to get into the car industry and how you thought was the best way to do it.
1: It's interesting. I mean, schools um, back then weren't particularly encouraging about the idea of going into engineering. But fortunately, I had a father that was uh, out of the engineering. He was a manufacturing engineer. And he bought me an A-series engine. The A-series engine, of course, is out of the Mini. He bought me an old broken engine when I was 14 years old. And I used to tear it apart and build it and tear it apart and rebuild it uh, and got a passion for wanting to basically be an automotive engineer since since that age. And so for me, rather than going down the university route, by far the most expedient way of becoming a, an automotive engineer was to leave school at 15, start an apprenticeship at 16. Uh, and, and basically, I, I found myself in a drawing room at the age of 20, qualified, Um, as a as an automotive designer so that was my route in Um, a bit risky in retrospect not to have gone through the university routes but you know we can talk about how I made up for that but but nevertheless as a result of that became passionate about that being a legitimate route into the automotive industry and indeed into senior management.
0: You've sort of touched on there but what was the the perception of general apprenticeships not just engineering but back when you started out?
1: Well, look, um, you know, I, I I I did okay at school in in terms of in top streams and what have you, and I was being encouraged to, into careers, everything other than engineering. And engineering seemed to have a a reputation back then, and I'm not sure that it's that much different these days. As as something that you you know you get your hands dirty, you don't really want to go into that. And I was encouraged to go into banking and and um, you know professions, white collar professions. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a, as a, as somebody that's good at maths and physics, there is no better profession than going into into engineering. But that wasn't being pushed by the schools of that time. As I say, fortunately, my dad was there to uh, to advise me something different. A- and you know, it's 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 subsequently been a very good career for me and should be a very good career for anybody with a propensity
0: towards STEM. Tell us about your apprenticeship then, specifically. What did you train as? What were you actually doing? What skills did you gain? Well, So I trained as a mechanical
1: engineer. Um, Actually, that's one of the things that's that's changed over the years. Back then, you you picked a discipline within engineering, mechanical, electrical, uh, production. These days, even if you're a mechanical engineer, you have to have a really good understanding of electrical and electronics. So the the edges are somewhat blurred these days. Um, But I I chose to be a mechanical engineer. I went to a company called Automotive Products that uh, used to design clutches and uh, brakes and and gearboxes and i went on a four-year indentured apprentice the first 18 months on the tools as it's called learning how to how to mill how to turn how to fit so basically learning the, the basic skills of engineering and then the rest of the time moving between departments within the company learning about quality engineering learning about production engineering uh spending the last 12 months of my apprenticeship in the advanced engineering department working on what was then a very, um, um, a very new idea of a twin-wet clutch uh, gearbox, um, something you see on lots of cars now. But this was, if, this, this was in the area where electronics was still a nascent, a nascent um, technology. Um, and I, I ended my term in there. I did three, three further years in the advanced engineering uh, where not only did I gain experience in, in that area and in particular in um, digital electronics – uh, but but also studied for my degree at night school in, in management. So I started to catch up on the education side, and it was that experience and that qualification that then allowed me to jump across to Austin Rover.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about um, getting into management because you got your first manager role at 22, I believe, incredibly young. I assume that was the, the plan, but then I think of the 14-year-old Andy who was pulling bits apart and you know getting your hands dirty.
1: Well funny old thing is, I, mean, I can be quite, uh, quite focused when I want to be. You know, the fourteen-year-old Andy wanted to be an automotive engineer. The twenty-year-old Andy um, came out of his apprenticeship in the middle of the turbulent times of Red Robo and the, the Wildcat strikes and all of the um, industrial uh, relation problems that were going on in the British car industry in in in, in the early eighties. And I looked at it and I you know, I was taken along to union meetings and I looked at it and I thought this is crazy. You've got you've got unions that want people to have a job and you 've got management that wants people to work, surely there they may not be hundred percent in the same direction, but surely we don't have to have all of these industrial issues and, and the arrogant 20 year old in me said, "I can do this better, and I want to be the chief executive of a car company someday to demonstrate that it is possible so So uh, you know I got to that 20 year old uh, having somewhat fulfilled that ambition of the 14 year old and then set about this um, crazy um, uh, ambition to, to to try to uh, to rise through management, um, which which for, fortunately, a little bit of luck and an awful lot of hard work, um, I
0: was able to achieve. Some say arrogant, others might say precocious. Either way, congratulations <laughs> that your twenty uh, year old um, had it together. You knew what you wanted, I guess.
1: I you know and I, I've seen my my kids growing up and and you know I, I see them and not, not necessarily knowing what they really really wanted to do, uh, whereas I, since 14 I knew exactly what I wanted to do and, and focus, of course, does allow you to go to go to things quicker and get things quicker done, done much quicker. so yes, all of those things, arrogant, most definitely, um, you, you, uh, you, you, you learn to be a little bit more meek as you grow up. Um, and you learn about empathy and things. But back back then, I I, I thought I could do it better.
0: Want to ask about the that you went for education to do management? Was it that you just didn't think that what you were learning during your apprenticeship was offering that level of education that you required to do that?
1: For for management side, no. I mean the engineering the engineering uh, what was called an HNC in those days that that allowed me to to discharge my duties as a, as a draftsman for sure uh, but it didn't equip me for management uh and I was a great believer that that you know I I needed I needed the what what ultimately turned out into into three Three years of of hard work at night school and weekends. I needed that to, to to bring up the education to to a basic level for management, and I needed that to get my foot in in the door for essentially that first that first management job. Um, so so no, I, I look at throughout my career since um, I've done a lot of academic uh, stuff at, at, at sort of weekends, evenings, partial release. I, I did um, I did a. Both in engineering, I did a master's degree and a PhD in engineering, and I did an MBA in in management. So I'm a great believer in in bringing together both practical and academic. It makes you better. It makes
0: you think. It, it it's a, it
1: makes you a better person for sure. I'm feeling
0: enormously inadequate right now. But um, uh, the skills you learn uh, as an apprentice apprentice, let's talk about those as opposed to the mm-hmm. ones you learned when you went to do sort of further education. I imagine they equipped you very well and have been very useful as your career progressed. What do you think those skills were?
1: Um, The most important really has um, not not so much to do with the engineering skills. It's the people skills. Coming up from the very bottom of a company uh, as the as the young apprentice doing you know everything, um, you learn you learn to get things done through people. You learn about empathy. You learn about delegation. But you also learn. About how things are really, really done, and as you grow up in simple terms, you know where the, you know where the bodies are buried you, you know the questions to ask, you know the things that are causing problems, so because you 've done them and you 've lived it and you 've been there so and it also gives you a lot more rapport with, with when you 're talking to people because they also know that you 've done it so I, I think the, the the apprenticeship in its simple term and the thing that 's stayed with me hopefully right through my career is is an ability to get on with people and, and ask the right questions now obviously on a on a on a technical side it also taught me to to you know my, my basic engineering skills um, but i I use less of those those these days than I do the people skills
0: well I want to talk about your time in Aston Martin in 2014 you joined the sort of challenges that you faced and the role that you see you saw apprentices playing in achieving those goals for Aston Martin
1: well in, in in 2014 Aston was all but bankrupt um it was it was basically facing a breach of its covenants and um I had three months to get us through that so so I did clearly the company is still there um and we 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 took we took a, a company that was you know valued when the Italians bought it at at 420 million pounds um uh, eventually to 4.4 billion. There's two things happening there. Actually, what one is that uh, you're sort of doing the stuff to to save the company, mm-hmm. um, and the second is that you're building for the future, and and things like uh, deciding to put a new plant in Wales, uh, moving towards the first SUV, and employing the next generation of managers through the apprentices. Uh, and we went from basically employing almost no apprentices to getting up to, up to close to a hundred a year. Um, that was all about the long term uh, putting in place those things that would allow uh, Aston to thrive way beyond my stewardship of the company and I think those things were were, were important and I know for a fact that some of those some of those apprentices uh, that have come through that system you I know mean, both at the introduction and through the end of it and are now working in, in, in proper jobs inside inside Aston and other companies are doing really well as a result of a, a really professional apprenticeship
0: program that Aston put together. Tell me a little bit more then, about some of, not just necessarily Aston, but some of the apprentices that you've employed during your career, the sort of skills they typically came away with, and what made them so good in your eyes?
1: Well, I've always, uh, I mean, obviously I have a soft spot for um, the apprenticeship, so I've always spent a lot of time with um, with all of the apprentices and hopefully given them access to me uh, but but I, I I mean all of the schemes that that i 've been involved in i we always try to give apprentices a lot of responsibility very early in their in their career, so they could find themselves in charge of of um, important processes and in also managing people at even the tender ages of 18 and 19 years old so so basically you allow people to fail in a in a safe environment and learn from it and and it's really important
0: you do that at a very early age talking about apprentices at the coalface as it were but what about in the boardroom I imagine not everyone that you've met in the boardroom will have come from the same background that you have. What benefit does that sort of diversity and that diverse thinking and experience and background have for a company?
1: Yeah, well, most people don't. And, you know, when I, when I moved to Austin Rover, I was actually at a disadvantage because at that stage I didn't have an engineering degree. I got my, my master's degree during my tenure at Rover, and and there was certainly there was certainly a perception that if you didn't have a degree, you couldn't be a manager. It's an obscene uh, and stupid um, um, point of view, but you will hear it voiced. And so, yes, even in the boardroom, I was a relatively rarity, you know, rarity insofar as the, the route that I come up and you know, not coming through universities. And I think it, I think it was a point of strength. Um, Certainly, as I say, I could get a greater rapport with, with people at all levels of the organization. I think it meant that I had a, a better understanding of how operations worked, uh, allowed me to um, ask the difficult questions sometimes, allowed me to, to skip through organizations and get to the, to the fact holders. So I, I, I think because, you know, I'm not, nothing against the, the, the degree route and it's got lots of merits, but I think the fact that I did both uh, but I started with that you know rock solid foundation of apprenticeship i think it 's a it 's a real strength and and, and that 's what i really that 's one of the, the the very strong messages that i 'm always sending to government, which is basically you shouldn 't be pushing fifty percent of your of your population through university courses. There is a credible alternative and and, and for many people um, going through an apprenticeship route. Uh, and and getting their education that way is sometimes way better for them than necessarily being forced into uh, into a degree that they didn't necessarily want to do.
0: Is this why you launched the Palmer Foundation in twenty eighteen tell, tell us about that. What, what did you want to achieve?
1: Engineering gave me, a, you know, it gave me a good life. It gave me a, a great career, and um, and I'm, I'm ever grateful for it. Um, but what I've seen through my career is that quite often. Um, it hasn't attracted the diversity that I would expect in in that kind of career. Uh, It was quite difficult to find um, ethnic minorities in, in many of those apprenticeships. It's quite difficult to find female engineers coming through that route. In particular, what I'd observed over time was that many of the apprenticeships, whilst not coming necessarily from a rich background, weren't coming from a poor, poor background, if I can express it like that. And what I was seeing was that some, some talent in, you know, particularly in 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 people com- from coming from difficult backgrounds, um, we were losing that talent at around the age of fourteen uh, because they were being dragged off into other things, sometimes, sometimes gangs, sometimes having to go and do uh, other things for the families. Um, and so, what I wanted to do was to try to find a way of Getting at these kids that have a difficult background and and cultivating them from the age of sort of 14, teaching them why it's important that they wear a tie to an interview, that they write a good CV, that they understand how the interview process would go, Um, understanding the importance of studying their maths and physics and the idea is that I deal I sort of deal with these guys, act as a steward for these for these kids up until the age of sixteen, and then find them an apprenticeship and then for the first two years of the apprenticeship, I pay them and and The reason for that is that I can then go to all of the contacts that I have in the industry and I can say to them look look you're you're taking on a hundred apprentices this year, take on a hundred and one, mm-hmm. take on a hundred and one, and I'll pay for the extra one. It won't cost you a thing." And at the end of the two years, we can decide whether we then send them to, uh, to university um, through Coventry University or whether you finish off the apprenticeship with them. But the, go- the goal is that these kids that have come from this disadvantaged background at the age of 21 years old will have no disadvantage career wise compared to the kid that's come through Eton and Oxford. That's the goal. Do you have any
0: early success stories?
1: We're 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 just taking our first sets of uh, of people coming through. So wh- where the success stories exist is 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 uh, apprentices that I've dealt with over the over the fir- over the last few years that are acting as like ambassadors for me, and they're helping those those fourteen year olds. So we're feeding the system at the moment, and um, I'm hoping that we'll be placing our first apprentice uh, this coming September, COVID willing.
0: Do, yeah, absolutely. Do keep us up to date with that. Can you just tell us what? sort of work are you doing at the moment?
1: I'm, I'm doing anything that's really associated with net zero carbon. So mm-hmm. in my days at, um, at, at, at Nissan, I was kind of the, the creator of the Nissan LEAF. And that was all about zero emissions from the tailpipe. And so sort of 15 years on, I, I really wanted to reinvent that position. But rather than zero emissions of the tailpipe, to be net zero carbon, and so I'm doing work in that arena, but the most obvious one is is taking uh, Optair buses. Optair is a company in Leeds, are uh, taking their buses and uh, creating a company from that, which is called Switch Mobility Limited. And and Switch is 100% EV, but more interesting than that is also 100% net zero carbon. Um, and and that company uh, basically is 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 looking at uh, at, a, at a whole Plethora of countries and and latching onto the back of this 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 drive towards uh, zero carbon. That's one of the roles. The other role, the key role, is being a vice chairman of a company called Innobat. Uh, Innobat is a startup company in Slovakia um, that is uh, basically um, forging its way forward to to make uh, batteries for 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 motor transportation what's interesting is it's using its own intellectual property rather than licensing it from eastern company, you know uh, east asian companies so it's a it's a real startup it's really interesting uh, and it's already got its first first uh, orders so really really exciting uh, and and a few other things that i can't talk about but they're all they're all in that space of, of net zero carbon
0: you're forcing us to get you back in, aren't you? Uh, the zero carbon, is that is that the future then? And why I bring this back to Apprentices is because we've obviously had Boris Johnson and his green ambitions. Uh, and I guess how much of a role can that pay, play in the restarting of the economy um, post-coronavirus, but also tying into the zero carbon and the future of automotive industry?
1: I, I hope it's a big play because, you know, for example, if you really, really want to stop damaging the earth, um, one of the quickest way you can do that in automotive is to is to get rid of the uh, diesel buses and the diesel taxes uh, they're a relatively small fleet but they have a, a a big impact on the on the air quality so moving investing in 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 you know battery buses is is a way forward as you go through time you know it's going to be engineers that are going to find the solutions to 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 saving the planet and you know, if the UK wants to be a part of that, then it needs to continue to uh, train uh, the youngsters with those skills. And, and there is, you know, there is a, an advertisement for engineering. There is no better way to help the planet really than, than to, to bring your maths and physics talent and discharge it through an engineering career.
0: I, I know what you're going to say uh, if anyone's thinking about doing an apprenticeship, but um, given your experience, what would you say to that person, particularly if it's in engineering? I'd say hold,
1: hold it up and compare it to the traditional route of going to university. It may be for you that going to the university is the, is the right way of, of going, or it could be that you're more practically minded and you'd prefer to do an apprenticeship. What I'd say is they both have, they both have merit. And, and you should consider both in 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 your in your thinking um but both will also take you to that end goal of being a whether it's a mechanical engineer an electronic engineer a software engineer a production engineer but the world is short of engineers and you know when the world is short that generally means that you're going to have a well-paid career going forward
0: Thank you very much to Andy Palmer. Now, before we meet our next apprentice, let's take a look at the government's new white paper, Skills for Jobs. And to do that, we've invited Tim Smith, Policy Director at Multiverse, to join us. Now, you may remember Tim from episode one, where he was Policy Director at White Hat. He has not changed jobs, I understand. Instead, it is White Hat that has changed. Tim, welcome. Welcome back. Um, Explain what on earth I'm talking about. Well, it's
2: great to be back on the show, Georgie, so thank you for having me. Um, We've been thinking really hard about uh, our our growth as a company and what we can do for apprenticeships in the UK, and it all boiled down to a big decision, um, which is where we are geographically and what we do um, in the UK. And for a long time now, we've been called White Hat. And the inspiration of that basically came from the idea that we were hacking the system. We were It comes from computer hacking for good. Um, and we decided that we'd been going for about four years and we actually, we managed to triple in size uh, in 2020. Um, and we needed to think about what came next. And we ultimately decided that hacking the system wasn't really good enough for the ambitions that we had as a company. And actually we need to think about how we built a new one. So we have decided on the name multiverse, which we love because what it really captures is that this idea that there are multiple worlds out there. You can create your own possibilities because somewhere else in the world it's already happening. That's the that's the inspiration behind the multiverse theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it what it encapsulates is this idea that there is limitless potential, limitless opportunity, and ultimately that's what we try to provide for our apprentices and what we think ultimately apprenticeships can be for people in the UK.
0: I was going to ask, because you know, the nub of this isn't, isn't in a name, I suppose. I mean, it's fantastic as well that you're growing incredibly fast, but is what will this do? How will this benefit the apprentices that you actually work with?
2: Yeah, so the name change comes along two other bits of news that we've had an, as an organization. The first is that we've completed a set of fundraising. Now, because we're a startup, we are backed by venture capitalists who are investing in us to try and build this new system for apprenticeships. And we closed a, a Series B funding round, which is essentially the kind of third funding round you have as a startup, um, which at $44 million is the largest amount ever invested in a UK edtech company. Um, And not only that, but we've also taken the decision to expand into the US. Um, And what this means is that we're able to connect apprentices to a global community of people who aren't just, you know, friends they can make and job opportunities they can have in the UK, but it's also expanding that across the world. Um, And if we, if we go back to the core of what we're trying to do as a company, it is turn apprenticeships into an outstanding alternative to university and corporate training. And really that global reach, um, that ability to invest in a service uh, and a type of education that genuinely rivals and exceeds what university can do, that's the opportunity at the heart of the announcements that we made last week.
0: We're going to talk about the government skills for job white paper in a second, but where do you fit in to the apprentice picture? If we're going to talk about the government, where are you at?
2: So as a company, Multiverse is a training provider. Um, and what this means is that uh, if you are an employee who's going on an apprenticeship or somebody just starting out who's starting out on an apprenticeship, you work with an employer. Um, so they pay you your wage. You go, you turn up, and that's where you you do your job, or you log on, and that's that's the work you do. And then your training provider, which is where we sit. The organisation that provide you with the training, they 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 teach you the skills you need, and they have a curriculum uh, which sets out what you need to learn, and they provide coaches. Uh, and what we we try to do is we try to attract the very best ex industry people into provide that coaching to apprentices in the workplace.
0: Great. Well, let's talk about that um, Government Skills for Job white paper then. So they say it will revolutionise post-16 education, reshape the training landscape and help the nation build back better. So what are the main headlines from that? And, well, will it?
2: Uh, it's a great thought, and there's, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. There's the the world of the wonks who spend all day studying further education policy, uh, and they will take one different view. And then uh, there's another set of people who are who are those probably who will benefit from a better system of further education. Um, he'll take another one. And I, I want to sit with the latter camp and the big picture about what this will mean. I mean, broadly, um, there are a couple of headlines that I'd, I'd draw out. Um, the first is actually the lack of a clear headline around funding. Um, and for a long time, people in the sector thought this might be a moment for uh, a big funding package that would allow colleges and providers to look over the next three years and think, this is where the money's going to come from, and this is what we can plan towards. Now, that isn't going to happen. Uh, this Well, it wasn't going to happen last week, um, and it looks like it's probably not going to happen in the next couple of months. And you can kind of understand the government rationale for that, which is we're in a time of crisis and it's very hard to plan for the next three months, let alone the next three years. What they've gone for instead is a paper that has a series of incremental measures, what you call uh, a large group of very common sense policies um, about how the system can be reshaped. I think the first thing to draw out, is it puts employers right at the centre of the education system, and they want to get more input from employers for designing technical qualifications. And What this means in practice is that if you're doing an FE qualification, you're learning skills that are directly relevant for the jobs that you've got to do. It's not a curriculum that's just there because it's existed for decades, it's something that is up to date with the people who might actually give you a job. That feels like a really positive step in the right direction. The second thing I'd pull out is that the only way is local. um, And What a lot of effort included in this paper goes towards is making sure that local businesses and local colleges are working together hand in glove. So, if you're leaving the school system or wondering what to retrain, you can go uh, to a local skills improvement plan organization and they will help identify where the skills gaps in your local area so that you can do a qualification that actually gets you into a job.
0: Is there anything in it, or should we talk about anything that's not in it that should have gone in it?
2: One of the things to pull out is the the, the role of SMEs, uh, so small and medium-sized businesses. They're the organizations that ultimately create very large numbers of apprenticeships. Um, one of the facts that is included in there is that since the levy was introduced, the number of apprenticeships in large organizations has gone up by 7%, but in small businesses, it's gone down by about 40%. Um, and that That has been a really big challenge, and it's one of the reasons why the number of apprenticeships in the UK is actually pretty scarce. Um, And I think if you look through the, the sum of what's in the paper, there's perhaps less targeted at what small businesses actually need to create more apprenticeships. Don't get me wrong. There are a couple of policies in there which are important and will make a bit of a difference. So making it easier for large firms to use their unspent apprenticeship levy, for example, to transfer it to small businesses. But what you don't see in here are any kind of big bang measures that will help small businesses create large numbers of apprenticeships at scale. And I think that's one of the things that will be on the government's agenda and one of the things that's probably still on their to-do list at the end of this, mm. at the end of this process.
0: Well, like you said, you know, we are in the middle of a, a global pandemic. There are lots of competing interests, we put it that way, for the government at the moment. You cheered, though, I guess, by the the emphasis on revolutionising post-16 education and the the role that this will play in helping us get back to business?
2: Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that's Really important when we look at further education is that actually cultural attitudes are hugely important. Um, it matters if school leaders think we should be widening the knowledge that our, our, our pupils have about um, uh, the, the, the role of apprenticeships and non university routes. It really matters that companies know that actually a way to hire super talented, driven individuals isn't necessarily by just going oh, we'll have another grad scheme and expand that a bit. It's by genuinely looking beyond and looking at who gets opportunity, uh, who gets access to the opportunities that great careers can provide. Um, And one of the things that is really, you know, comes through brilliantly uh, through this white paper is actually the the kind of level of ambition that um, leaders and politicians have. Um, You know, they talk brilliantly about uh, the level of ambition for for, for levelling the playing field between university and technical routes. And actually, one, one policy I would draw out, which is really positive, is um, the way they talk about strengthening uh, the level of education provided to people at school um, about their career options. Um, there's, this, there's this bit of policy called the Baker Clause, which mandates that, sc- that schools have to teach Uh, young people about apprenticeship options and about non-university routes and they will be looking at strengthening this um, in the weeks and months to come.
0: Well there is a great quote that sort of makes me think of what you've just said there you know it says in here we want to put an end to the illusion that a degree is the only route to success and a good job and that further and technical education is a second class option. The worrying thing is we've sort of heard this before haven't we and what is different this time?
2: Yeah I think First off, the, the the scale of the crisis that we face at the moment is is bigger. Um, you know, if you look at what's happened in the last year, uh, companies have have generally um, had less resource around to hire new people, so they've had to look at um, uh, what the actually the best way is to keep their existing employees engaged um, and trained in the right areas. And at the same time, there's been this kind of massive uh, shift as everyone starts working from home um, and every company has to adjust to the reality of uh, existing in a digital world. Um, that's created massive skills gaps. Uh, you know, the, the fastest growing apprenticeships at the moment are all in, in digital and tech areas where companies need skilled individuals to, to kind of make a success of working from home and, and and riding that wave of digital transformation. And whenever you get a kind of big moment of crisis, a big, a big moment of change, um, it's an opportunity to reset things. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's a moment that we can be excited about. I think, you know, one other thing, which just speaks from from our experience at Multiverse is that you know there are attitudes changing you know across the, co- the corporate sector and actually many companies are the kind of biggest champions of of making this shift you know in the course of our of our of our fundraising you know we weren't just you know raising money to, to you know to try and power our business what we did was we spoke to some of the you know the world's leading investors people like John Thompson the chairman of Microsoft, Jeremy Darick the CEO of Sky. And said, and that what they did is they looked through what we were doing in detail, and they went, actually, yes, there is a societal need for an alternative to university, and, and we want to back it and make it happen.
0: We've spoken about the pandemic. I do want to just focus in a bit more about how it's um, affecting the businesses and the apprentices that you're working with at the moment.
2: Yeah, well, it's you know it's something we take very seriously. Our obligations are first and foremost to our own employees and also to our apprentices. Um, I think. Uh, you know what we've done to try and to try and bridge the gap and make sure that educations aren't interrupters is we've first off we've we've doubled down on mental health which i think is um you know something as a society we need to take increasingly seriously so uh we've been looking at ways that we can provide bespoke services to apprentices so they um, have resources they need if they ever find themselves in moments of difficulty um secondly we've been looking at how you can maintain that human touch and i think you know throughout education it's it's really difficult to uh, to replicate that moment when you are actually you know, in a class with a coach or a teacher and can you know talk to them face to face. Um and what we've what we've done is made sure that you've we've maximized the amount of time that apprentices have one-on-one with their coaches so they can carry on having those those conversations with people. Um and then I think the third thing that's that's been a kind of big a big development that we've had to do um to try and improve the apprentice experience is around data. Um and we've really made sure that we are we are collecting and using all the data we can access uh, for apprentices and the experiences they are they are having. So not just working out who's logged in to every session and class, but measuring how people are doing on their on their twenty percent off the job requirement. Um using that data to spot people before they get into trouble um and then being able to act on it by by, by having one to one conversations with them.
0: Tim Smith from Multiverse, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Now, each week on the podcast, we check in with one of our group of five apprentices. They're from all different backgrounds and they're training in very different sectors. So this week is the turn of Dexter Hutchings. And a very warm welcome. Dexter, what is your apprenticeship and why did you decide to do it?
3: Yeah. Hi, Georgie. So as you said, I'm Dexter and I am a digital marketing apprentice. Um, so I work for an education charity and I kind of chose this route because I went to 6-1 and I just really wasn't enjoying it. Um, So I I kind of stepped back and thought, what do I want to do? Um, And I'd worked from the age of 14 um, and had kind of always really enjoyed it. And having not enjoyed sixth form, I interviewed at this education charity that was trying to change education to kind of suit people like me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just kind of a match made in heaven.
0: So what does your um, average day look like? What does heaven look like, Dexter?
3: For me, it's all things digital. So at the moment, I'm redesigning our website, which is a great project to be working on. So I've actually been working on that for about a year now. Um, So I work in a comms team of two. Um, So obviously I get to kind of try out a lot of different things that you may not get in a larger organisation. So I kind of run the social media accounts, look after the website, uh, get to do some PR as well. So it's really kind of broad what I get to do actually. What do your mates
0: who are taking perhaps a more traditional path
3: making of what you're doing? So most of my friends actually took apprenticeships as well. So um, a few of them have now gone into to different jobs and so on. But yeah, I've had a couple that worked at banks um, in construction, but most of them actually did go through the kind of apprenticeship route with me. Um, those that went down the university route have just finished. And obviously, most of them are now struggling to, to find jobs with the current situation. So um, those that have done apprenticeships have kind of fared off better than the ones that went to university at the moment.
0: Are you ever worried that you're making a decision young that will take you down one specific path sort of digital or do you think the skills that you're learning are, are actually quite broad that even if you realize this isn't for you after your apprenticeship then it will take you down other
3: avenues? Oh no 100% I think for me I've learned so much that I just couldn't have learned at university so uh, kind of business skills just more personal skills um, confidence uh, how to promote like myself as a person how to talk to people that I would have never spoken to if I had gone to university. Um, I think that it's put me in a position now where realistically I have the skill sets to do anything I want to do. And I've also got the mindset that I know that I'm capable of it, which I think Mm. to me is the most important thing.
0: I was going to say, do you think there's a level, I mean, this is obviously just your experience, a level of maturity perhaps that you're getting through this route that maybe you wouldn't have done had you gone a more traditional path?
3: Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think when I joined, I was probably, I was I was 17 when I joined, so I was uh, quite immature. Um, and it was kind of a, a shock to the system when I was told that I had to actually grow up and kind of be serious every single day, um, apart from the weekends, of course. Um, so yeah, I think I, you do have to kind of mature. But at the same time, um, you're learning so much that it's kind of just you're focused on that and you don't really see it.
0: Mm. I want to ask how your apprenticeships though been affected by the pandemic so far, particularly the impact of this uh, latest lockdown?
3: Obviously, I'm working from home, but I'm, I'm really lucky that I'm in an organisation where we can continue to work. So uh, for me personally, it's not affecting me too much. Obviously, working in a digital role as well, um, within the organisation, I'm probably the least affected because everything can be done online. Um, but I know that a lot of apprentices obviously are struggling, a lot of being kind of let out of roles. But I think overall, uh, for me personally, I've been really lucky with kind of working where I am that I can still continue yeah you are
0: in an industry that's obviously perhaps less affected by by the pandemic but in terms of being an apprentice you expect a certain level of support from your from your training provider this is education as well I mean are you getting that support what are they providing what are they doing uh, to mitigate the the impact that this might have on you?
3: Yeah, so I think I'm at London South Bank University. So obviously they're a huge organisation in terms of training providers. Um, so obviously they've got loads of support in place for kind of mental health and like general well being. Um, I think the the kind of jump to online learning has been a challenge for everyone. I think so. Um, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that. Kind of trying to concentrate on seven hours of lectures a day can be quite hard. Um, and I think that's probably been a massive challenge for most apprentices who are kind of doing the online learning side of things now.
0: Mm. If someone's listening to this and thinking, you know, maybe I should do an apprenticeship, what would you say to them?
3: Oh, do it. I think for, for me, it's changed my life massively. Um, and I think that whoever you are, it can change your life. So, I mean, I was really struggling with sixth form. So for me, it was that kind of second chance. But I think it's it's not just a second chance nowadays. I think apprenticeships are for anyone um and there's so many different careers that you can go into for an apprenticeship that i'd say just grab it do it if there's something that you want to do um, and there's an apprenticeship in that kind of field then definitely go for it
0: Mm, you're working in education at a charity that wants to mess it up basically in a good way in a way that that you understand it that you perhaps didn't when you were at sixth form you know as a young person who's gone through the struggling at sixth form and where is where are they going wrong currently? We've got a, a government white paper that's just being published at the moment. And I'm not going to ask you all about that. Um, but where do you think some of the obvious things that are going wrong that would have helped you a bit more in that situation?
3: Yeah, definitely. So I think at the moment it's kind of the, the pressure to go to university is huge. So I think that needs changing straight away so uh, schools can definitely be promoting the apprenticeship route more Um, but I think in general education needs to be more employer focused and kind of linked to the real world so I think so many times you're sat in a maths lesson and you're thinking when am I ever going to need this skill Um, and it could be that it's actually really important to the career that you're going to end up having but because we don't use it in a real world situation it's quite hard to see how that's relevant Um, so I think if we kind of linked lessons to, to real life then it could definitely be more impactful um, and people would understand it better. Um, And then after that, it's obviously just making sure that young people are aware of the different kind of routes that they can take um, and just getting rid of the stigma that apprenticeships aren't as valid as university.
0: Thank you so much, Dexter. As I said, we will be checking in on all five of our apprentices during this series. Wish you all the very best. Thank you also to Andy Palmer and to Tim Smith and to you, of course, for listening to this episode of All About Apprenticeships. If you have any questions or comments on what was said today, or you want to share your own experiences, you can find the HomeServe Foundation on Twitter at HSV underscore foundation. You can just use the hashtag All About Apprenticeships. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a rating and hit subscribe wherever you found us. It does help other people find us too.